0: I always felt like the company was kind of this permanent fixture in our lives. But when I started working in the company full time um, in 1992, when I was 23 years old, my very first day on the job, my dad, who was the CEO at the time, grabbed me and said, Hey, Robert, come here. There's there's somebody here from the bank. He's here to help us. His name is Jerry. And what I didn't know then was that uh, Jerry was a bank-appointed consultant. And so um, Jerry brought me into a conference room and sat me down and, you know, he was this, this big guy and he was very red faced and he just started yelling at me saying, you have no cash. Do you understand that you guys have no cash? And he just kept saying it over and over to me and he was staring into my eyes and I was sitting there and I just after a, a minute, I said, well, how much cash are you supposed to have?
1: Imagine something that has always felt like a permanent fixture to you, like a national monument or an oak tree, something you grew up with, something that means a great deal to you. Then one day, a stranger out of the blue told you with absolute certainty that this permanent fixture is about to disappear. What would you do? How would you feel? In this episode, we're going to hear a story about a third-generation CEO, how he fought to preserve a hundred-year-old family enterprise that not only means the world to him, but to many Americans as well. Radio Flyer is an American toy company best known for their iconic Little Red Wagon. In 2017, Radio Flyer celebrated its 100th year anniversary. But there was a time when the company looked like it might no longer be a permanent fixture in Robert Passon's life. And who's Robert?
0: My name is Robert Passon, and I'm the chief wagon officer at Radio Flyer.
1: Uh, chief wagon what? Where did that come from?
0: Yeah, well, many years ago, when I would tell people that I was the CEO of Radio Flyer, a lot of people would respond saying, oh my gosh, that job is so much fun. Do you get to test the wagons? What does that job mean? And as I got reactions from people, I thought, well, that title sounds too serious for what our brand means and for how much Radio Flyer represents fun. So that's when I came up with uh, Chief Wagon Officer. And really my goal was to make people smile when I said the title and, and have it really capture what Radio Flyer is all about.
1: Making people smile? That sounds good. So what is Radio Flyer all about? Well, we'll find out soon. But before Robert got to the fun part, how did he react to people like Red faced Jerry yelling at him about having no cash? And how did he work within and lead his family enterprise to transform it from this struggling entity to one that thrives? Hi, my name is Esther Choi, and I'm the executive producer, your host of Kellogg Center for Family Enterprises' own podcast series, Family in Business a podcast that features stories of leaders, their families, and the family enterprises they transformed. Now first, let's hear a bit of context. What is Robert's relationship with Radio Flyer?
0: I was born into the family that started Radio Flyer. That's what gave me the opportunity. And at a very young age, I fell in love with Radio Flyer and what it means to people. And one of my first memories of being aware of that was when I was five years old and my dad brought me to work with him and we walked around uh, the factory and I saw the shiny red wagons on the conveyor line and heard the sound of the punch presses and smelled the paint and it, it just all seemed like some sort of magical Rube Goldberg machine This, with all these wagons moving around going, and, and they were all going out into the world to bring joy to families. And I just thought it was so cool, and I fell in love with it. And growing up, I worked in the business, uh, in the warehouse. And after graduating from college and doing a year of volunteer work, teaching in Chicago, I joined the sales team, and I've been at the company ever since.
1: Over the decades, Radio Flyer has received many letters, along with pictures from the customers, sharing stories about what the Little Red Wagon meant to them. For example, this letter from Chris W. at Carpentersville, Illinois. He had this to say. If Norman Rockwell had designed a wagon, I don't think he could have done better than the radio flyer. It is Americana on four wheels. A wagon did services for 11 kids and survived everything we could dream of throwing at her. She carried everything from Barbies to bricks. She was a go-kart and a grocery cart, a spaceship, and a magic carpet. Now, if your family owns a company that produces products like the Red Little Ragon, and that has been a long-standing part of so many Americans' childhood memories, maybe you can assume that the company is going to be around for a long time, maybe forever. Well, not really.
0: When I came into the business you know, 25 plus years ago, the company was really at a crossroads. The company had been doing well for 70 years, uh, but pretty much the company had not changed. We were a steel stamper. We manufactured wagons out of steel and we were very good at that. But uh, consumer preferences had changed and steel wagons were on the decline and plastic wagons came out from our competitors. and. We didn't know how to make plastic wagons we really got kicked in the gut when competitors came out with two new plastic wagons and as soon as we saw these plastic wagons we knew we were in trouble uh, because the plastic wagons you could do things with that material that you couldn't with the traditional steel and wood wagons like you could mold in seats for the kids you could mold in cup holders and At the time, half of our sales were the town and country wagon, which is this red wooden wagon that is very iconic and many, many people grew up with it. In fact, it was our bestseller for 30 years and it was our cash count. It was half of our sales. And the problem was that those plastic wagons started taking away sales from the town and country. And it was like fuel had been poured on the fire that was burning on our sinking ship. I mean, we were really in complete crisis
1: can they just pivot and then make their products in plastic? Well, it's not that simple.
2: Any business having to make that pivot would have a business challenge. But similar to other family businesses, there's often a family challenge layered on top of a business challenge, which is that all of these people that were good at, what the things that we did before, may be people that the family loves and is loath to let go.
1: This is Jennifer Pendergast. Kellogg Center for Family Enterprises Executive Director.
2: So what do we do with the family orientation towards trying to support and care for their employees as if they're part of a family, if we have to change our employee base to address challenges? Families, businesses are often more insular. They don't tend to bring in a lot of talent from the outside. So then that raises the question of where is this marketing, branding, talent going to come from? Families are often very wedded to their history. Families are frugal. And so a lot of time, a pivot costs money before you make money. And then families are also, by the way, risk averse. So pivoting doesn't come with a guarantee that that new strategy is going to be successful. So the combination of additional investment and additional risk can be something that's very hard for families to get their arms around as well.
1: So what did Robert and his family end up doing? Did they pivot? If so, how? Before we get into it, we'd like to thank Robert Passon, Chief Ragan Officer at Radio Flyer and the Kellogg alum, Class of 1997, for joining us for our inaugural episode of Family in Business. Robert is one of thousands of family leaders who have shared their stories and wisdom with the center over the decades through our speaker series, MBA elective courses, and executive education programs. So don't forget to check out FamilyEnterprises.net, that's FamilyEnterprises.net, to see how you can take advantage of these eye-opening professional development opportunities set in an intimate and private environments. Let's get back to Robert's story.
0: And we had to figure out what were we going to do because the game had totally changed and we had completely missed it. But we had a lot of questions that we were asking ourselves, like, you know, how are we going to make a plastic wagon when no one in the company knew anything about plastic? How are we going to design a plastic wagon? Because we didn't have a product development team. We had two engineers who were great guys and knew everything there was to know about steel but they didn't know how to make anything out of plastic and if we didn't know how to make plastic in our own factory you know where would we make it we, we had never outsourced a product we had never made a product outside of our own walls it was kind of an you know existentialist threat to our company and we had to ask a lot of questions like what is Radio Flyer? Are we a manufacturer? Or are we a product development company? Or are we a brand? And what can we be the best in the world at?
1: What can we be best in the world at? This is indeed an existential question, one that requires years, if not decades, to figure out. But Radio Flyer, when Robert first joined as a full-time employee, didn't have the luxury of time. Because there are also people sent by the bank, like Red Face Jerry yelling at him while delivering bad news at his doorsteps. In
0: 1992, when I was 23 years old, my very first day on the job, um, I joined the sales department at the time. And at the end of the day, my dad, who was the CEO at the time, grabbed me and said, Hey, Robert, come here. There's, There's somebody here from the bank. He's here to help us. His name is Jerry. And what I didn't know then was that uh, Jerry was a bank appointed consultant, which I didn't even know what that meant at the time. And I later learned you don't want one of those because it means you're in trouble. <laughs> and so um, Jerry brought me into a conference room and sat me down. And, you know, he was this, this big guy and he was very red faced. And he just started yelling at me saying, you have no cash. Do you understand that you guys have no cash? And he just kept saying it over and over to me and he was staring into my eyes and I was sitting there and I just, after a minute, I said, well, how much cash are you supposed to have? And he he started laughing because he realized, wow, this kid is totally clueless. He's, you know, <laughs> just starting out here. But what Jerry later, you know, went on to tell me was that uh, we had a lot of debt and we weren't making any money and the company wasn't growing. So we were in this weakened financial condition because for many years we had been making a product line of wheelbarrows um, that were perfect for manufacturing our factory, but we didn't have any intellectual property on the products and we started losing out to competition. And ultimately we exited that line of products, but it left the company in this weakened financial condition that I walked into. And at the time it was, you know, the, the offices were kind of dingy you know, the people, everyone had been there for a really long time. I think we maybe had one computer in the office. I mean, so it wasn't a, a vibrant, progressive, you know, creative type of a company at, at that time. You know, we really had the mentality of a manufacturer in the sense that we thought about, well, what can we make in our factory? And then can we sell it? Versus what do consumers want and expect from Radio Flyer, from our brand? And and when we shifted that, it did unlock a lot of potential.
1: This shift in the types of questions Radio Flyer was asking is very significant. Research shows that family-owned businesses tend not to be very entrepreneurial and innovative. But there are notable exceptions. So what does it require of the leaders for these exceptions to happen. Here's Jennifer again.
2: If a family aspires to be around for generations, then the CEO in that scenario needs to be thinking forward about what could put us out of business and how do we make sure that we can still be here. But I still think it takes an unusual person. And I think in Robert, it shows vision, strategic mindset, courage, and also some humility, I think, to be able to say, I'm willing to leave behind what we've done before and figure out, you know, it takes a learning mindset because he also had to learn how to do something new. Right. He didn't know how to lead a company like that. So he put himself at risk as well. And that took, I think, both courage and sort of a learner profile from the leader standpoint as well.
0: We ultimately decided that, you know, the most valuable thing we have is the brand, the Radio Flyer brand and consumers relationships with the brand and what it means to them and the fact that it means adventure and imagination. And people would tell us these wonderful stories about being a kid and being pulled by someone they loved to somewhere that was fun and imagery like the sun was in my face and I could smell the green grass. and And so we said, well, those are the emotional elements of our brand and how do we then tap into those to create other awesome products that people will really love. And so we really focused on less on being a manufacturer and more on being a product design company that could make those products that could deliver those kind of experiences that people really, really love.
1: If you build it, they'll come, right? No, not necessarily. In fact, the odds stack up quite high against them. Because first of all, what are they going to do with all the assets that they've built up for 70 years that solidified their number one position, but in a market that was fast disappearing? Radio Flyers' transformation was a long, long road of struggles involving closing a factory, laying off employees, and failing at product development many, many, many times
0: those were some of the toughest decisions, but there was also a huge, uh, very steep learning curve. I mean, we didn't have a product development team at the company. We had people who knew how to make stuff out of steel and they were really good at it and they were great people, but we needed to find designers and engineers who could make products out of plastic and who could uh, make different products that we'd never made before, like tricycles and scooters and, and other things that kids could ride on. So. Once we made the decision, it was very clear, but then we had to do a huge amount of work building up the team with the skills and talents that we needed for growth.
1: Was everybody behind such a difficult decision?
0: Well, no, I wouldn't. uh, No, people were not behind the decision, really. I mean, it was was a decision. It wasn't just one day, you know, where we said, "Okay, this is it. We're not going to be in the manufacture anymore. I mean, it happened over time. Mm -hmm. But I think... Through a process of communicating really clearly to people and the fact that, you know, everybody in the company, you know, I had known since I was a kid growing up in the factory and working there and everything. So there was a huge degree of trust. And my dad had always led the company with a tremendous amount of integrity and and authenticity. So there was a huge reservoir of trust. And, you know, as we made these changes, we did it as gently as we could and as gradually as we could so that we, things like offered early retirement and severance packages to people as we really started to change out the team and hire people with different talents.
1: Now, closing of a manufacturer, especially one that attached to a very iconic American brand, did that attract any media attention?
0: Yeah, I mean, we we were hoping that it wouldn't, but it, it did. And Um, When we announced it, um, I mean, since we're we're not a public company, we didn't have to communicate it, but news got out and there was an article in the Chicago Tribune announcing it. And the day that that article ran, so this was in 2004, news crews came to our parking lot to, to interview people when they were leaving work. And these were people who we had recently communicated were losing their jobs and we were shutting it down. And. And one of the amazing things I think that happened on that day was that nobody said anything negative about the company or about our family. And I think it's because we handled we we had built up a huge reservoir of trust with the people who'd worked in the company. We were very open and transparent with them about why we were doing this. And we treated people with a lot of respect and and we were generous in the way that we parted with the people through severance and outplacement and things like that. So It was definitely the worst day of of my career, having to communicate that. But I think ultimately, while people were really sad, they they knew we needed to do it to survive.
1: Robert, his family, and his team survived that day, the worst day of his career. But that day wasn't the end. It was just the beginning. The beginning of a long road of challenges to transform his family enterprise. For example, Radio Flyer. Plastic wagon? Can that really work for Radio Flyer?
0: We didn't even know if a consumer would accept a plastic wagon from Radio Flyer, this traditional classic brand. And we didn't know if our retail customers would buy it either. So we had all these questions. But I knew that if we were going to succeed, you know, we had to go where the consumer was and we had to th- deliver what the consumer wanted. So we started to just figure it out and it was a super steep learning curve. We had to find a design firm that could design a plastic wagon. We had to find a manufacturer that could make the plastic wagons for us. And we made a ton of mistakes. I mean, the first one that we came out with, the push-pull wagon was too small and it didn't sell. And then the second one we came out with was green because one of our competitors' plastic wagons was green. And so we were trying to kind of imitate the competition. That didn't work. The third time, we did a plastic version of that town and country wagon that everyone knew. And then sales started to increase and we started to learn. And finally, we came out with our big winner, the Pathfinder, that featured this patented uh, flip-up seats that would create two wagons in one. And that's when we really regained our number one position in wagons. But it took several years of learning and trying and coming out with those plastic wagons. So we really figured it out.
1: This whole process, can you guess how long? Have a number in your mind, and then we'll ask Robert to tell us how many years really was several years.
0: I would say 10 years from when we decided that that's what we needed to do to get to a place to have a critical mass of a team that could really start generating a lot of new products. I mean. One of our best sellers for 30 years, the Town and Country Wagon. And it was, a, it was our cash cow, but it was on the decline. And we really hadn't come out with a big new item since then. Well, you know, now we're developing 20 to 30 new products every year to fuel our growth. So it's a huge change for us.
1: One of the best ways to prepare for and deal with big changes is to surround yourself with peers, people who understand your situations, your challenges, and your dilemma. That's why each year, hundreds of family enterprise leaders gather at our global campuses to learn from one another. For example, Chris Hershen is one of our longtime friends and supporters for Kellogg's Center for Family Enterprises.
0: So I'm Chris Hershen. I'm the chairman at my family's business. We call it Hershen Enterprises. When we got to come to Governing Family Enterprises several years ago, I learned a lot from John and maybe more importantly, all the other people in that program and that I've met through the center since then. That's probably been the richest component for us is all the peer families we've bumped into. When you get family leaders in a room with other family leaders, And the focus is not what I'd call an internal, but an external focus where you're looking around and saying, well, how do you handle and, oh, you deal with this too? It is magic. It just repeats consistently.
1: And the magic that Chris talks about takes place at one of our executive education programs called Governing the Family Enterprise. It convenes twice a year in Evanston, Illinois at our main campus. When you're accepted into the program you'll be joined by peers from leading family-run organizations around the world and you'll learn how family governance can help sustain business continuity family unity and commitment getting through this huge change has paid off starting from his founding year in 1917 Radio Flyer has developed more than 100 award-winning products available in over 25 countries. It has also won the best workplace numerous times by a wide variety of media outlets, such as Fortunes and Chicago Crane Business. And in 2017, it even won a Daytime Emmy Award with an animated short film that Robert was the executive producer of. The film is called taking flight. And it's really good. You should definitely check it out. Although now the company is at a good place, two types of threats are lurking. Not in the background, but in the close horizon. One is the ever-changing landscape of the retail space. And two, well, do kids these days even play outside like their parents and grandparents used to? can you even peel them away from the digital devices
0: yeah it's a, it's an issue we talk about a lot you know how do we kind of bridge the digital to the physical the screens are very very compelling i mean they're i have four kids too and i've seen the same thing and so i think you know one of the ways that we want to try to stay relevant through that medium is through storytelling and bringing the radio flyer brand to life in in different ways and so a couple of years ago to celebrate our 100th anniversary, we created an animated short film called Taking Flight. And it's this really heartwarming story about a kid who's getting dropped off at his grandpa's house and he thinks he's going to have this boring day. And they discover the wagon and have all these adventures and and it won an Emmy. So it was a very exciting and a very, and we were viewing that as an experiment of how do we kind of get into entertainment and storytelling so that, you know, we can be presenting Radio Flyer through those ways through either a TV show or a movie or even games that could be on a screen that then could translate from digital to physical. So we haven't quite figured all that out yet, but it's something we're talking about a lot and working on.
1: What can we expect from Radio Flyer in the future of any entertainment piece, anything that we could possibly enjoy?
0: (laughs) Not really, not yet. (laughs) <laughs> it's top secret right now. Sorry.
1: One last thing about sort of the future changing landscape in in the space, and that is the changing retail or traditional retail space. How does that impact your business and, and how are you adapting to it?
0: That's a change. One of the many changes that's a constant is that, you know, the retail landscape has changed through the years when I think back of, you know, Sears was the huge retailer um, that was our biggest customer. And then it was Kmart and then it was Toys R Us and Walmart and Amazon. And so, you know, those changes have always happened. And we've always just had the point of view that uh, we are going to have our products where people want to go and buy them. And so it's our job to figure out how to change and One of the things about not being a huge company that's really great is that we're very nimble. And so, you know, I remember going to Amazon when they were one building in Seattle and, you know, 20 years ago and and first starting to sell them. So we're just always looking for emerging retailers and we just make sure that we're serving them and uh, we're going to have our products where people want to buy them.
1: How do you prepare for... The future in ways that is embracing that risk taking that your grandfather really lived by, but still being the third generation steward of the business that he created.
0: Well, I think being a a privately held family business is a huge advantage in terms of preparing for the future. And there's actually a great Harvard Business Review article called Why the 21st Century Will Belong to Family Businesses. And in the article, they talk about the fact that family businesses can be more agile. They can make decisions faster, maybe than a large public company, because the stakeholders are usually in the business, running the business. And that's something that we're, we're very decisive. We move fast on things when we make decisions and and we're very in touch with our customers and what's going on. We're listening to them constantly and we're always monitoring for the small changes so that we can make those adjustments and changes so that we're changing at least at the same pace as the external environment. And that's, I think, just how we need to do it.
1: Whether it's founding a business with family or inheriting a business from family, the word family in the phrase family business isn't only serving as an adjective, like thriving business or declining business. The word family in family business should really be a noun in and of itself, as in family in business, because the family in the business is its own entity, and it just happened to have been entwined with the business they're in together. Here are two ways that Robert Pierson and his family manifest the concept of family in business during those years of transformation. One, what happened when he and his father disagreed fundamentally about how to turn the business around? And two, how did he deliver the sad news of closing the factory not just to the workers, but to the widow who's married to the founder of Radio Flyer, Robert's own grandmother.
0: I remember, you know, specifically as we were preparing to communicate that and, and we tried to handle it as best we could and communicated early and and do outplacement for people. and But as we were getting ready to announce it, I called my grandma, who was the, the wife of my grandpa, the founder of the company, to let her know that we had decided to do this and why. And she was an Italian immigrant and she, you know, grew up, you know, her whole life was being part of the business and being married to the founder of the business and but she said you know it's very sad but I understand you know that if you're doing it it must be the right thing. So I think there was definitely some sadness around making that change but I think everyone understood that if we didn't do it it wasn't going to stay a business and it certainly wasn't going to stay a family business because we would have either gone out of business or had to sell the company.
1: I'm reminded of what John Nelson, CEO of Seed Beauty, said in an interview with us in 2019. A family in business means that we're making a conscious decision to come together. And the business that we're in today is very likely not necessarily going to be the same business in the future. And certainly not going to be the same business for the next generation if we even get to that point of if they want to join that business. Robert and his family, they're making a conscious decision to lead a family in business. Are there any examples where the way that you see things or how you would run things are very different from how your dad would approach things?
0: Yeah, I mean, the biggest fight that my dad and I ever got in was uh, during those first few years when it was really tumultuous and we were in crisis. And... I was kind of running around at times with like a chicken with my head cut off trying to do anything I could to, to help the business and, and to learn. We were approaching our 80th anniversary in 1997 and I saw it as this amazing opportunity to have a PR campaign and tell my grandpa's story about, you know, being this immigrant success story coming to this country and creating this product. and. But we, we did not do any PR. In fact, my dad had told me that if, if there are ever any PR inquiries, just say no and hang up the phone you know, because he liked his privacy and that's how he had led the company. And he didn't want the family name, you know, associated with the, the company name. So I remember when I walked into my dad's office the day that I was. Going to pitch him on the idea of doing this PR campaign. I pretty much knew what he was going to say because I'd heard a lot of it before. But you know, I, I started by saying, "Hey, Dad, I know you don't like PR and you like your privacy." And and I remember he leaned back in his chair and he, he lit a cigar. And I said, "Dad, there's no smoking in the office anymore." And he's like, "No, what are you talking about? Nobody told me about this." And <laughs> so so, but my dad's a very mild mannered guy, so he continued to smoke a cigar while I. I uh, pitched him the idea, and I said, "You know, with the company's struggling. This would be a big shot in the arm for the brand. I want to tell the story of the founding of the company, and I think we should build the world's just wagon to get attention." And my dad's kind of like, "Are you crazy? That like, what do you want all this publicity for? You can have reporters here. They're going to be asking you questions that you don't want to answer about like our sales and things like that." And so, you know, we got pretty heated and fired up and um, but then, you know, I just kept at him. I I didn't. (laughs) It was pretty relentless. And and that's one of the good things about being in a family business. A lot of times you can maybe push those things uh, farther than you would and, and not lose your job if you're a member of the family. So ultimately my dad just kind of was like, okay, fine, you can do it, but just leave me out of it. I don't want my story, you know, as part of this PR campaign. And so we did it. We built the world's largest wagon. We told my, my grandpa's story for the first time and we got incredible coverage. We were on CNN. We were on the Today show and it really revitalized the brand. And when it was all said and done, um, My dad said, you know, that was a really good thing for the brand. Uh, Even though it made me feel uncomfortable from a privacy point of view, that was a good thing. So it was good in the end, but it was a little messy getting there.
1: So you wore him out. uh, (laughs) Yeah, it's like kids will do, right? Kids
0: will wear out their parents.
1: Yes. No matter what age you're in, you always (laughs) get the (laughs) license to wear your parents out.
0: (laughs) Yes, exactly. It's a strategy. (laughs)
1: Every leader. Every family has different ways of dealing with crisis, but often it's the day-to-day leadership that prepares the leader and the enterprise for these challenges. So how does Robert lead on a day-to-day basis? Well, he has three things going for him. Number one,
0: well, my mom, since as far as back as I can remember, my mom always told me that I was born with a smile on my face. We can <laughs> debate the the facts on that exactly. But, you know, she always uh, told me from a very young age, I was always a very happy kid. I've always loved to make people laugh. Uh, humor is a huge part of my personality. And, and it's become a huge part of how I lead the company. And I feel like humor is just such an important part of life. And I think I'm just the person I am at work is the same as the person I am at home. And and so the way I try to bring humor to work is I just am, am myself. But, you know, some of the ways I do that is, you know, we have a big Halloween party every year at the company. And I always try to dress up in a costume that either pokes fun at myself or, you know, celebrates something about Radio Flyer. I laugh a lot with the team. I think it's really important because I think being the head of the company and, and being the third generation at the company, can, it can be a little intimidating to people. And so I think it's important to, to kind of disarm them and, and be more accessible through humor.
2: Okay.
1: Humor is helpful. Laughing is actually really good for our health. And being able to laugh at ourselves with our team can inoculate us from one of the most common and persistent challenges in product development. Failures. Good old-fashioned failures. And here's the second way Robert leads on a day-to-day basis.
0: We have spent a huge amount of money and time and effort on products that failed. I used to kind of beat myself up about it, like, well, why didn't I see that coming? It seems so clear in hindsight that that was a bad product idea, but I've just come to learn that there's really no way around it, because even though I've been doing this for almost 30 years, I still don't know which products are going to be successful and which ones aren't. And I don't think anybody really does um, in the world of coming out with new products, so We just try to mine those failures for as many learnings as possible so that the next time we can, you know, each time get a little bit better at coming out with new products.
1: Not being too hard on yourself when you failed, incorporating humor are two of the three ways Robert leads. Now, the third way he leads on a day-to-day basis is a little surprising.
0: I've always loved that, that saying, follow your passion, you know, and I'm very passionate about what I do. And I, but I, as I've gotten older, I kind of feel like there's a little bit of a spin that on that. And I think it's probably more important to follow your purpose, which can take a while to figure out what, what your purpose is. But I feel like if you do follow your purpose, which to me is how an individual can uniquely positively impact the world that you're going to be passionate about that because if it is a deep purpose like that, you know, the passion will just be there. And so when I was early in the business, when the business was really struggling and I was there, you know, very early on, I I discovered my purpose, which was to lead a transformation of the company from a company that was really on the decline to a company that was thriving and that could do all kinds of amazing things that would live out the potential of the Radio Flyer brand and what it means to people.
1: Finding your purpose can take a long time, but when you're with your peers, when you're with people who know and understand your struggles, relate to your values and priorities, and they have stories to share with you, you're all that much more likely to find your purpose. And in turn, that purpose will fuel your passion. Thank you for tuning in to Family in Business, a podcast sponsored by the Kellogg Center for Family Enterprises. Thank you again, Robert Passon, Chief Wagon Officer of Radio Flyer. Our show is supported and advised by Dr. Jennifer Panagast. Kane Power is our audio engineer. And I'm Esther Choi, the executive producer, your host of this podcast, and author of the book, Let the Story Do the Work. Don't forget to subscribe and rate our show, Family in Business, it really helps other to find our show. Thank you for listening, and let's meet again at the next episode of Family in Business.